Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome to Bouncing Back, the Personal Resilience Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. Let's get started. Today's topic addresses rumination and how it affects our personal resilience. Let's get started. Hi, Jen, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. It's so good to have you. So where are you joining us from exactly? You have a really gorgeous accent. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I'm joining you from New York. I live in New York. Oh, okay. I was listening to um, Ashley Graham's podcast before and when you came on, I was like, she sounds exactly the same. Well, thank you. I assume that's a nice compliment. <laughs> yeah, so I love Ashley Graham. She is an incredible, credible woman. I've had to recommend. Um, but anyway, moving on. So for those who don't know you, do you mind explaining a bit about who you are and what it is you do? Sure. Um, as you said, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist in New York. Um, I provide services in New York, New Jersey, and Florida. And I am an expert in cognitive behavioral therapy and um, I am a specialist in OCD, PTSD, and um, I do provide support for women going through fertility issues and postpartum. Um, With OCD, I specialize in exposure response prevention therapy, um, which is the gold standard treatment for for OCD. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, that's so interesting. How did you end up in that field because like I'm not going to say it's a niche field but it's like something that you have to have like an interest in (laughs) to get into it yeah yeah no I mean it's definitely a specialized area and um you know the way honestly the way that I got into it so I went back to grad school later in life um I was in you know well into a a previous career in finance and I decided to go back to school um yeah, I really wanted to, I really just wanted to be in the helping profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and psychology is something that always kind of interested me. And it was something I'd always thought about, but never really pursued. And so when I decided to go back to school, um, I somebody very close to me actually had OCD back, you know, 10, 15 years before I even considered going back to school. And I just remember that being not only probably the hardest, period in that person's life, but also there being really, really good therapy that really helped this person. And um, I always kind of kept an interest in OCD and it was just, you know, it's so nuanced and so complex compared to what we typically see with like, you know, people straightening things or being scared of germs. I mean, that's certainly one area, but um, this person actually had obsessions and themes that you don't typically see, you know, related to, or that you typically don't see portrayed, you know, in the media or whatever, which is like worries about harm, worries about sexual identity. And I just found it incredibly fascinating and was so encouraged by 
the response to therapy. And so when I decided to go back to school, I was like, you know, I think I'm going to like kind of just keep my eye out on this, see if it's something I like. And where I went back to grad school, there happened to be a renowned expert in OCD working at a, an adjacent lab at a, at a nearby another university that was nearby. I contacted her. She invited me into her lab. Um, she is an amazing mentor and we just, I just got more and more involved. I liked it more and more. And then oh, but I, I was able to get a lot of clinical expertise in, yeah. in treatment. So that's amazing. I love that. And I just love how you've like taken that pathway and this, like your interest is so like from the heart. And I love that. And that's just like, that's, I'm sure reflected in your work and just how passionate you are. It's amazing. My best friend, we've been best friends for, oh gosh, like nearly 10 years now. Um, and she has OCD. And so I was so interested and she was like, so interested in like this episode. She was like, Oh, she's like, that's so interesting because like you said, it's such a like multi-faceted thing. And it's not something that has just like one face. And it's not like a lot of the time, yeah, like the media portrays it as something that like is only a visual thing when a lot of the time there aren't those visual aspects to it. Anyway, so thank you for that introduction. So we're going to go into some get to know you questions now. So this is essentially a part of the podcast where I ask you five questions and you're just going to give me some answers just to learn a little bit more about you so listen and feel a little bit more engaged. Are you ready? Yes. Awesome. Okay. The first question is, uh, what is a recent book you have read? Um, so I recently read a book about Henrietta Lacks. Okay. And I don't know if you know who that is or if you've heard of that. So, um, so it is a book about a woman who, um, it, it was set in the 1950s and she was diagnosed with cancer and she was in Baltimore and um, she was a poor black woman who went and got treatment at Johns Hopkins in the 50s. And anyway, she ended up having a cancer diagnosis. They took her a, a biopsy and they found out that her cells actually reproduced and, and upheld outside of the body better than any other cancer cells they had seen. Anyway, wow. her cells and, and these cells are are responsible for so many uh, medical advancements that we've had today. And the book is really interesting because it talks about that piece. And I mean, her cells were implicated in developing the polio vaccine. Oh, I believe wow. like in vitro fertilization. Yeah, her cells were like mm-hmm. kind of considered yeah. these like magic <laughs> cells at the yeah. time. Um, but what's also very interesting about it, and I think a massive underlying theme, which which I really enjoyed was it, given the time period that it was set, it was before there was like informed consent. Mm. And, yeah, you know, it, it brings up like bioethics because what ended up happening is John Hopkins took her, her cancer cells, did not tell her family, didn't tell anybody what they were doing, gave these cells out for research and- yep companies have made billions of dollars on her cells and yeah. never never gave anything to the family and wow. the family you know as i said she was a, a poor black woman who was going to get treatment yeah. in the 50s so it just brings up this like really interesting you know it makes you really think about consent and yeah. what 
you know, what parts of my body are still my body, even if they're out of my body. And then also just very interesting how she really impacted the history of, of medical advance. I mean, incredible, an incredible story. Yeah. So, wow. Sorry. That was a very long <laughs> answer, but no, I really like it. sounds so book. cool. Yeah. <laughs> is, it a, is it a really long book or is it just? It's not too bad. I mean, the fact that I read it, should tell anyone that it's manageable because I, you're, you're I, not not a whole, <laughs> I, you know, I read it while I was in grad school. So I was reading everything else. Yeah. Um, so, but I really was able to find time. It's not, I mean, it's a few hundred pages probably. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds so interesting. What's that one called? Oh, geez. It's, um, <laughs> I'm so bad at remembering names of books That's and okay. movies. Like once the, once it closes, I think it's yes. the, um, something life of Henrietta Lacks. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> that's so interesting. No, no, no. <laughs> we will like suss out what it's called later. No, that's so interesting. No, I love that. Awesome. I find, yeah, I find that kind of like, yeah, the literature is so fascinating, just like how these things began. And yeah, she definitely, yeah, definitely been an impact on the medical world. Uh, so my second question is, what is a movie you would recommend Oh, geez. Um, well, I think it depends kind of what the person's going for. Um, I This is hard for me because, to, so to be fully honest, I have had a baby. I have a one-year-old. So this past year, wow. I have not watched anything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like so out of yeah. touch with everything. Yeah. But some of my favorite movies... Um, so for like thriller type movie, I mean, it's an old movie, but I absolutely adore Silence of the Lambs. I think it is so oh, wow. creepy and like scary. And if you're into like psychological thrillers and you have was expecting. No, um, oh, wow. <laughs> but if you want something really funny, I am obsessed. I love the movie Dumb and Dumber. It, I don't know if it, it I'm sort of dating myself, yeah. but I find that to be one of the funniest movies yeah oh 100 yeah i i i adore it i so. completely those concur like, with that statement <laughs> that's really too like totally different movies i know, I know. I love it. I, yeah it's, that's great yeah no i completely yeah i definitely concur with dumb and dumb totally just like it's a really funny movie just can't not relate so to funny. it that was the lamps <laughs> like a little it's a little bit too far out for me those kind of things freak me out but like hey if it's, you're into it and then like you know like, if that's what you're looking so for they go for it yeah it's, oh, 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 i can't so. definitely not for everybody no no what i'm nervous okay so my third question is who is your famous role model well, now i should preference this like not everybody has one so i'm interested to like see what you say um so i think one of the people I probably, who's famous that I look up to the most would probably be, I, I love Michelle Obama. My gosh, yeah. Like, I just think she is phenomenal. I think she's so smart. I remember. And she had such a significant role, you know, as the first African-American first lady. Um, and I just thought the way that she navigated that role and she promoted so many like female centric female empowerment movements yeah, in that role and i just think she's brilliant and 
I think she's amazing. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Yeah. And do you have like yeah, a role model that she is definitely she's definitely one of the ones to like pick because yeah, I love her. I think she's so amazing. I remember when I was like, it feels so long ago now that like when she was first lady, like it feels like it was like it doesn't it doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but when I think about like how old I actually was, I was like, Oh my gosh, like that was that was a really long time ago. I remember like staying wow. up like really late. And like, because obviously we're in Australia, so it's like completely yeah. different time zone. And it's like yeah. one or two o'clock in the morning or whatever. And yeah, and she and my mom was awake and we were both like sitting there like in the lounge room, like watching this like moment in history. And I was like such a little, just like such a little person, just like a little teenager. <laughs> but yeah, oh my goodness, that one's, yeah, that was definitely a big moment in history. Have you read her book? Yeah. Yeah, I have. I have yeah, read it. And it's very good. It's it is. so good. And she writes so well. She's just so yeah, good. Yeah, she's, I, yeah, I love her. I and could we, go on and on about her. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Well, well, we'll move on from our Michelle Obama fan club. <laughs> um, what is your favorite podcast? Oh, so here's an, I don't have a. You can have multiple answers. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to do the whole, like, my favorite genre, yeah. which will freak you out again, but it has to do with, I love anything that's true crime. Cool. I, I love true crime. <laughs> yeah. And it's a bonus if it's serial killer true crime for me. Oh, okay. That's a, um, like a good thing. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, I just find it fascinating. Yeah. I, like, I find it Absolutely. Yeah, see how, as like a clinical psychologist, you would kind of like find that material a bit more interesting, probably, than yeah. a person. Yeah. And it's not, I don't work with the criminal or forensic population at all. However, yeah. from a clinical perspective, I'm so intrigued. Like, yeah. I find it so fascinating. So that's so yeah. cool. Oh, yeah. I'm like, I try. I try to like listen to sound because like obviously they're a very like trendy thing to listen to. I know. And like some of them are like really good. Like they are really interesting. But I just my brain is just like, why are we listening to it's like why why I know, I know. To know? <laughs> like I know. Well, but I'll tell you another podcast though that is not true crime that I okay. adore is Radio Lab. Have you ever listened to Radio Lab? No, but it sounds really familiar. It's so good. It's very it's science based. So, but they do it. They talk about the most interesting things and like the way they produce the podcast is so um just entertaining and it's like they talk about science in a very entertaining way and yeah. not a dry way and they come up with just some really interesting topics. So, I I love Radio Lab. That is a okay. non um creepy <laughs> recommendation <laughs> no, yeah that's fair. i'm coming off as like such a list like right now like i have no tolerance no. for like things like that i i didn't do but i just like choose not to read I, I know i i totally understand why but it is why totally that's... fascinating though like yeah I'm, yeah it's really, it is really fascinating. It's kind of like a genre. I think as humans, we just like naturally just like gravitate towards things that are just so like out of our own spectrum. We're just like, no, that's so weird. I'm going to go look at it because it's yeah. just, like, it's just like that natural, like child, like instinct. Like I have to touch it. 
Yes, that is very much how it is for me. I find it disturbing, yet I like I have to know more. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Okay, so my fifth and final question is: What is a course you have completed? It doesn't have to be recent, but it can be the most recent one you've done. Um, thankfully, I haven't had to do formal graduate coursework in a long time. But um, honestly, though, one of the courses that I did take in graduate school, um, it was a psychology class, but the way, what was the focus of the class, um, the professor was really into what's called interpersonal neurobiology. And um, (laughs) the reason I'm saying this- I have no idea what that means. (laughs) You know, it's a really- um, it's it's a it's a field that is very complicated, and I, to be honest, I wouldn't do it justice to try to explain the entire field. But the way that it really impacted me through psychology is it looks a lot at the biological impacts of things like trauma and attachment, and we can actually see changes in the brain. And it's about it actually talks a lot about resilience because the brain is not is not static, the brain changes. And so the idea is that we can have these kind of biological, neurological underpinnings that are a result of perhaps like difficult upbringing or or circumstances, but we can also learn how to kind of correct and, and change the brain in ways that are more adaptive. And that 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 course just absolutely changed really the way that I, I look at people um, because it helped me really understand that a lot of what we're seeing or a lot of the ways that people respond can be due to like actual changes in in the brain. Um, and again, I won't go into it, but like trauma and things like that actually yeah. can change the structure and and things that we can observe in imaging and things of the brain. And it's fascinating. That's so interesting. No, yeah, definitely. I can see how that would be um, something that you would have enjoyed, definitely. And I always found, (laughs) yeah, neuroscience and neurology and just, I was on the brain so fascinating. And then if I didn't, if I didn't hate math, then I totally (laughs) would have gone into neuroscience, but I am terrible at math. I just can't just start something that I could just get over. So I'm just like, okay, I'll just like, I'll just learn to enjoy it just from a yeah. just from a biased yeah. perspective. But yeah, yeah that's that's really interesting. Yeah. So as I already mentioned today, we are discussing rumination, which is a core feature of OCD. And we're mainly discussing it to see how it affects our resilience, which we've already which you've already brought up. So before we dive into the kind of nitty-gritty of that. For our listeners, Jen, how would you define personal resilience? Um, when I think of the concept of resilience, I think of like the ability to recover and the bil- ability to adapt to um, difficult or even maybe traumatic um, mm. life events or life situations. I think of things like, I mean, it could be something like job loss like I said, trauma, loss of a loved one, but it's the way it, it's the way that we cope, move through it and, 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 and recover from it. 
Yeah, definitely. Exactly. And that's why the show is called Bouncing Back because like at its core, resilience is about not being like, um, what's the word? Not being like invincible, but being able mm-hmm. to kind of be malleable and still be able to like, yeah, give yourself the strength to work through certain moments in life. Because at some point in life, you know, we're all going to come across something that's going mm-hmm. to you know, push us down a little bit. So it's being able to be, yeah, bounce back and sort of come back up. So let's get into the interview questions. This is the part that everyone's here for. So <laughs> so a lot of people think that resilience means being immune to stress and adversity. Why do you think that this is what we think is sort of like the human race? Um, I think that a lot of times people maybe want or wish that we didn't have to have stressors or we didn't have to have adversity. Um, I think that also we like to think that somehow strength or bravery is a quality that can fend those things off. And I think in some ways it can we, we just, we like those ideas that, you know, you can somehow ward it off if you're just whatever enough. Yeah. Um, but the reality is, is that everybody will go through adversity. Everybody will have something that is difficult for them that they have to manage. And that really is just part of the human condition. Yeah. And it's how we respond. It's how we manage that, that is actually what's what's really important and how being, being able to be effective in those times um, is really to me what resilience is all about. But I think we kind of wish that we could, we could escape without, without problems, but yeah, definitely. No, I completely agree. I, yeah, a lot of the time, like we wish we were invincible while we create superheroes. Like we wish that we had that part of, you know, the human strength that in, like channelable, but it's not like consistent. Um, mm-hmm. So now that we've kind of understood resilience and kind of how that works for those listening, how would you define rumination? Just to like go into the you know the topic of what we're here to talk about today. How would you define it? So I think I think rumination first and foremost it's a cognitive process, so it's a thinking process. It's it's a behavior really. Um, it is, you know, you'll, if you read about it or whatever, you might see it referred to as like a passive process. And what that, what that means, and that's a really important piece, I think, is because it is not, it's not problem solving. It's not actively, um, engaging in behaviors that are going to lead you somewhere productive. Um, it's typically negative thinking. Um, it often makes people feel worse. It doesn't lead to an action plan or coping. And it can also, you know, people typically engage in it to seek answers or seek certainty from problems that like really don't have answers. There's no set finite answer to it. Um, You know, and I think that it can be thinking about the past. It can be trying to predict the future, but it's a very negative, unproductive, um, repetitive 
cognitive process that typically doesn't lead anywhere constructive. Yeah. Is it the same as overthinking or is that kind of like a different concept? You know, I think overthinking is a term that certainly could be applied to rumination. Um, And I think that rumination can be when maybe the colloquial overthinking goes too far, right? You know, somebody's like, oh, you know, you're overthinking that situation. You probably are going through all of these kind of running these different scenarios and thinking about all of the what ifs. And that can certainly lead to a really negative, unhelpful space. Um, So I would say that they're, they're certainly, they could be related, um, but they don't necessarily, I, I think of rumination as a pretty heavy cognitive space. Yeah. Can you give like just an example, just to sort of that clarify what rumination kind of looks like? Yeah. So I think rumination, you know, it can look like a few different things. Um, you can have, there's kind of like a, a depressive rumination that can look like um, thoughts like, you know, why can't I ever do anything right? Why does everybody think I'm I'm weird? Why am I such a loser, right? And that person might be having these initial thoughts and then continuing to think about like situations maybe where they felt awkward or things that people have said to them to sort of churn through these thoughts about, you know, negative thoughts about the self. Other types of rumination can be those like, what if, and, you know, well, like, what if I fail my test? Um, what if I have something wrong with me? Um, and again, just a lot of thought around what that's going to look like. What am I going to do when that happens? How, you know, all the bad things that can happen. Um, you know, so I, I kind of think of those types of things when I think of rumination and OCD, I, I think even has a more unique, which we can get into, but I think it also has a a unique presentation of rumination, but it follows the same pattern of this unhelpful negative thought process that doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah. So is so is rumination like something that you have because you have OCD, or can it be something that stands alone, or is it like like how are those two interconnected? So rumination, definitely, people who don't have OCD ruminate. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I would say that rumination, like we know that rumination, people who tend to ruminate tend to be more at risk or develop like depression um, and, and kind of move into that mood space. Um, rumination with OCD, I I tend to think more of as a symptom of OCD. Yeah. Okay. Um, if that makes sense. So Yeah. And then that makes sense. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So what is the role of personal resilience in rumination? I think with, you know, like we said, resilience and and specifically personal resilience is how an, an individual copes with an adverse experience or, yeah. or a, a distressing situation. And part of that coping, those are thoughts and behaviors really that people are engaging in to get them through a situation. And if you're resilient, you get through them effectively. Um, rumination is not it's not useful. It's not helpful. Um, and it's important to really, and, and a lot of people I work with haven't thought of it this way, but rumination, as I said before, it's a behavior. And if it's a behavior, it's a choice. So rumination typically gets keeps people stuck 
It doesn't provide resolve. It really goes against a, a resilient way of, of managing. If that, you know, and that, that's not to say that you can't be resilient and have tendencies to ruminate, but the act of ruminating is just typically not, not productive and it's not going to be effective in managing whatever situation that you're in that, that you're struggling with. Um, it typically keeps people hooked in something and it can lead to really unhelpful thought patterns, which again, resilience, we try to look at flexibility. We try to look at, you know, different ways to move through something. Whereas rumination will keep us very much stuck and it can lead to like just really unhelpful thought processes and patterns and, um, you know, like all or nothing thinking, jumping to conclusions, catastrophizing, and those typically do not get us anywhere productive. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I'm really interested, yeah, just to see how rumination works sort of in the grand scheme of things. So does engaging in rumination cause someone to develop a mental health issue or is it vice versa? Like how do those things overlap? Um, I think it can kind of be both. So as I was saying, you know, someone who ruminates is going to probably be more prone to some cognitive thinking errors or some typical, um, you know, like jumping, like I was saying, jumping to conclusions, um, coming up with kind of the worst case scenario. And it does put people more at risk for depression. So in that case, your rumination can actually lead to a depressive mood, mood state. Yeah. Um, and though you can also see with OCD rumination as kind of a, more of a, a symptom or result of the OCD Boom. and not causing it, but feeding it and helping sustain the cycle of OCD. Yeah. Have we, have we defined OCD just like I can't remember? Did I ask you to define it? No. Okay. No, so, yeah, we need to, cause I was like thinking and I was like, oh yeah, like this makes sense to me. And obviously this makes sense to you. But like for those who haven't engaged in yeah. like conversation about OCD, do you mind just kind of like explaining it for those who yeah. don't understand? Of course. Um, so OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder is a uh, disorder that causes a lot of anxiety in people. It used to be classified as an anxiety disorder. It's now its own standalone, which doesn't matter too much, except for that it has its own very unique features that are separate from, you know, necessarily just another anxiety disorder. And so obsessive compulsive disorder has two primary components, obsessions, which are thoughts, images, or urges that are unwanted and extremely distressing, and they're repetitive. They cause extreme anxiety, like fight or flight type anxiety. And then people will engage in compulsions or behaviors in attempts to reduce or get rid of the anxiety caused by the obsessions. Yeah. And then the cycle repeats because typically those behaviors, if they do get rid of the anxiety, it's only temporary. And sometimes they don't get rid of it at all. So um, then the obsession comes back, the anxiety comes back. And the compulsion comes back. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Now, you mentioned before the um, exposure, or was it? You mentioned something. Exposure response prevention. Yeah. yeah. Now, I think if, if my 10 years of being best friends and my best friend searching around <laughs> me, and that's essentially just like going against the grain in terms of 
like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how does that work? That's yeah. Going against the green is a really good way of putting it, I think, because it's an incredibly, it it can feel very counterintuitive to people. Um, so the way it works, right. Is so the cycle that I described with the obsessions, anxiety, compulsion, repeat, um, that cycle is persisted and maintained through the compulsive behavior. So exposure response prevention looks to target the compulsive behavior, so get rid of it. So the exposure piece in ERP or exposure response prevention is we look to, in therapy, we bring up, we, we kind of seek out the obsessions. We try to get them to come up and we do that through exposure And that can be through exposing people really in all kinds of creative ways to their fears. It could just be writing something. It could be looking at a picture. It could be going somewhere, right? And when those obsessions are present, we then help a person engage in response prevention or ritual prevention, which is not doing the compulsions that they typically would do while these obsessions are present. And it helps a person learn a different way of coping. And it helps teach a person that a lot of their fears associated with the obsessions aren't going to come true. It also helps them realize that the anxiety is not going to harm them. Um, And it provides them with a different, more long-term effective way of dealing with the obsessions as opposed to being caught in this compulsive cycle that ultimately gets worse and worse and more time-consuming. Yeah. So bringing it back to rumination, is there a way to kind of break the cycle of rumination? Yeah. So really through exposure response prevention, we teach people to, first of all, recognize rumination. I think, as I was kind of mentioning before, typically people experience rumination as kind of this this automatic mental behavior. And it can be really hard for people to understand where in the mind an obsession starts and the rumination begins. And it's a very, it is very complicated and it is really nuanced, especially if you're like really anxious while you're trying to, to sort this out. And, you know, the rumination piece and really mental compulsions are things that get overlooked by clinicians all the time, but they are every bit as important of a compulsion to, to, to discover and to help a person cope with. So one of the first things is helping a person recognize when they're getting an urge to ruminate. So through therapy, it's like, okay, are you noticing that your brain wants to go into this place? It wants to start ruminating. It wants to go down that rabbit hole, right? Once a person can feel that and a person can recognize that that is in fact beyond the thought. So an obsession comes in in an automatic way. We can't control that. But what we do with it, we can control. So then we practice really noticing it and saying, okay, I could, you know, it sounds simple, but I could think about that, but I'm not going to. I'm going to go do something else instead. And it's really a practice in shifting attention, choosing to put your attention and your efforts elsewhere and and not going down that, that rumination path. Yeah. which will only make things worse. Definitely. So while we're sort of discussing this, and this obviously, like I said, Paul, it makes sense to me, makes sense to you. I'm sure it makes sense to lots of people listening, but there is still a lot of kind of misunderstanding. And I can definitely, I can sort of like hear some of my relatives in the background saying like, 
well, why would you do that if you know it's going to be bad? And that kind of leads me to my next question, just sort of coming from this point of view, is why do some individuals like frequently engage in rumination even when you know it's going to have negative consequences? Um, I think speaking generally, um, so not not just not OCD specific, but just in general, I think that rumination can, I think of it as a very seductive um, mental process, right? It can be very tempting and luring because it can really disguise itself as problem solving. And I think it's common to fall into a trap of like, well, if I just think about this hard enough, I can come up with a solution or I can be prepared for every single, you know, instance that could possibly happen or every single scenario. And, um, I think it can be hard when you're, especially when you're in distress to remember or consider that it, it may not have any long-term effectiveness. And I think it's easy to get caught in the moment of almost like feeling like a person is doing something or, or trying to solve it. And if they stick at it enough, they'll solve it. So I think it has this quality that makes it really hard to resist in the moment, even though perhaps outside of the distress, we can recognize that it is not going to be effective long-term. Yeah, exactly. I think that's even just going back to what we were talking about before. It's just like a human, just kind of like, we want to kind of damage things and just sort of go a little bit further. And that Mm -hmm. sounds really odd and like obviously it's not a great kind of aquatic trait that we all have but it is definitely something that comes into it so now i kind of want to discuss but we looked at sort of the symptoms a little bit and what they can kind of look at and look like so my next question is does ocd run in a van is this a genetic thing so Generally speaking, um, you know, we would consider OCD to have a genetic component. I think it's a little bit difficult to be precise about it. Um, We know that it is more likely that a person, a first degree relative of somebody with OCD will develop OCD. However, it is definitely not set in stone that a person related to someone with OCD will develop it. So it's there's not like a great answer other than it's probably both genetic and kind of environmental and behavioral. Um, and yeah. we, we definitely don't have a good divide as far as how much that is. Yeah. So how do we know that what we are experiencing is <clears throat> rumination related to OCD? Well, OCD will have, you know, they have, well, the rumination, first of all, with OCD is a response to an obsession. So it's a compulsion. And so with OCD, when we're, when we're noticing rumination as a component of a person's presentation, we are also going to hear certain kind of hallmark themes that we know are OCD. So these could be worries about contamination, worries about health, harming yourself, harming others, sexual identity, worries about sexually assaulting someone, um, worries about religion and morality, right? We're going to, you're going to hear a lot of those worries. And then in assessment, a person, you're going to hear a person ruminating about them. Um, 
so that's kind of the, the connection. Um, so I always say that like OCD is the master of like, what if, and it's always going to win a what if contest. And so if somebody, you know, did I touch that person on the subway? Did I type a slur in an email? Um, am I pregnant? Uh, do I have a serious illness or a deadly illness, right? These are the types of things that are going to typically be the content of what the person's ruminating about. And with OCD, the reason I say it always wins the what if game is some of those, like the person on the subway, you can think and think and think and think and try to remember, try to remember, but OCD is never going to give you the satisfaction of having an answer. Um, because even if you're like, no, I definitely didn't touch that person. Well, what if you just don't remember? And then you ruminate about that. Um, things that you can check, like checking an email or checking, you know, pregnancy test, for example, it you can't solve that one either because you might think, oh, we'll just take a pregnancy test. And if it says negative, you're not pregnant. Well, OCD will tell a person, oh, but what if the test was defective? And then you start to ruminate about that, right? Or what if you're the one person, you know, and it, it always will, you know, want you to do more. And so the rumination is always going to be about the uncertainty, the what if situations. And I work with people who try very hard to solve that. And it just, it just leaves nowhere. I mean, people taking 20, 30 pregnancy tests, right. Going to like 10, 20 different doctors to just because maybe the test was wrong or, you know, and so the, the OCD rumination is going to have those typically those themes or those qualities. Whereas other types of rumination, as I said before, may be more depressive. So like about depressive about the self, kind of disparaging towards the self or like generalized anxiety type of rumination um, is going to be more about kind of everyday type worries. Um, so, you know, what if I what if, you know, they run out of the cake I want at the bakery for the party on Saturday? What about, you know, kind of ruminating about these daily things, whereas OCD tends to take it to this really extreme place. Yeah. So is it kind of, is it different at all? Because I, mean, I hear a lot about um, like catastrophizing. Is this like a different concept or is this kind of like one of the facets of rumination? General rumination? Or with OCD. Yeah, I mean, I think catastrophe is a central piece that, you know, if you think about it, we are we are programmed to not want anything bad to happen to us. And so we are, you know, our fear system is wanting to predict things. It's wanting to solve things. It's wanting to scan for anything that could go wrong. And while that's, a you know, ultimately... It, it's a it's a good thing. It can become problematic when it's trying to over solve and try to solve problems that either are not there yet, or we don't have enough information, or simply we just will never know. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, because I like we hear about these things, and so being best friends with my best friend for long enough, mm -hmm. we we kind of we have these conversations, and you know, she has. OCD and I've got you know, XYZ and all this kind of stuff. So we have these conversations and we find it so interesting and you can kind of get yourself into like a little bit. It's funny because you can almost, like when you've got 
those kinds of symptoms you can sort of do the same thing but sort of like inwards in terms of like thinking about those things mm-hmm. and like oh what is this and all that kind of stuff um mm-hmm. but anyway so moving on what would be like we spoke about kind of uh you know removing those thoughts or escaping it and etc cetera, etc cetera. what would be your input related to the thought stopping method or like would you recommend it do you mind sort of explaining kind of like what that is so thought stopping um is not something that i would recommend but what it is uh is it's an idea of like when you start to have a negative thought or you start to have thought like you know i think the most famous one is like a rubber band around your wrist right so you start to have a negative thought you pop the rubber band and it you know makes the thought go away or diverts your attention so that you don't think the thought and well you know i really i can understand kind of why that might be you know at first blush like an appealing method um because it's like oh that can help condition or remind yourself right what we know happens with thoughts though is there's a rebound effect with thoughts yeah so the harder you try not to think about something or the harder you try to prevent the brain from kind of going where it's trying to go, the harder those thoughts want to come back in at you. And so it's not really effective long-term. And so I wouldn't recommend it. Instead, I would recommend kind of having a practice of noticing thoughts, accepting thoughts. We all have thought, we all have all kinds of thoughts. You know, we even, all of us have thoughts that are upsetting or taboo, right? And we we don't need to be stopping them necessarily. We just, I think it's more effective to realize that you don't have to indulge in or engage with every thought that comes across. Yeah, I was going to ask you kind of like, what would you recommend for people who feel like they can kind of identify this or people who have been kind of like diagnosed with it, what would you recommend in terms of like moving forward, kind of being able to, yeah, escape from this kind of. Kind of like what I was saying with OCD treatment, we have to first be aware of the behavior. And when a person catches themselves ruminating or they're catching themselves being pulled down the path of rumination, it's at that moment that we can choose if we continue or not. And so, you know, noticing those urges, labeling those urges um, and deciding really, am I gonna continue to put my attention here? Distraction is typically a good method for, you know, put placing your attention else, elsewhere. And that can range from a lot of you know, different methods. It can be something as easy as, you know, looking around your surroundings and finding things that you can see, things that you can touch, things that you can hear, right? That pull your senses in to help you get out of that cognitive kind of hole that rumination wants to pull you in. Um, Recognizing worries as worry thoughts. So, you know, if I'm worried that the bakery is not going to have the cupcakes I need for the party on Saturday, okay, I I can have that thought and I can notice that I'm having that thought and I can decide, well, maybe they'll have it and maybe I won't. I'll problem solve when I get there, right? And I can kind of decide to move on from it because, you know, 
there's nothing I can do in this moment probably that will, I guess with cupcakes, you could put in an order, but point being. <laughs> yeah, no, I got a new read. You know, yeah. if you can't problem solve in the moment, really being able to recognize that and move on from it. Yeah, definitely. I definitely had that. And I've had that thing said to me before in terms of, I think my psychologist said to me once it was like, um, she gave me an acronym and I can't remember what the rest of the acronym was, but it was like, think. And so it was like, like, is it true? Is it helpful? Yeah. Is it, I can't remember what the other ones are. Yeah. <laughs> it really yeah. clearly helped me out. But like pretty much by the second, <laughs> by, by the second one, you usually tend to figure out kind of like if this is, like if this is actually just like a general thought that I like should be having or is like totally, you know, okay. Or if it's like something that is kind of going a little bit further away than what is helpful and what is true. Yeah. And, and one thing that what you were saying reminds me of um, this thing called a, it's a worry decision tree. And it's, it's like this sheet that, you know, if you look at it, it's like kind of a problem solving sheet. So it's like, what am I thinking about? Okay. Is it something that I can do something about? Yeah. If I can, what are the things I need to do? Are any of those things actionable now? If something's actionable, you do it. If it's not actionable now, you distract away. Yeah. If it's not something that's problem solvable, you let it go. Right. So it's like this decision module and it helps really, I think, to pull out things that can be problem solved and and let's let the rest go because if it can't be problem solved then we will just get pulled into this like very ruminative place if we let it go there yeah definitely and i think that's yeah like definitely those kinds of methods i've found to be the most helpful like i don't have ocd but i've got anxiety and so like when you kind of get into that spiral and those thoughts and it's quite helpful to kind of just like to have to step back and be like, okay, is this actually, is this something I could do? Or am I just like coping up with things to think about? <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, but and yeah, so what, I, sorry, I'm going I just want to say with OCD specifically, we have to be very careful about distraction. We have to be very careful about word. logic. And I don't recommend for OCD treatment to try to take much of a logical approach with the thoughts. Um, because OCD will eat up and spit out logic because it's always going to go for the yeah, but yeah, but what if, right? And, and you will never be able to keep up with that. So OCD doesn't care if it makes sense. It doesn't care if it's likely or probable. It doesn't care if it's actionable. It wants you to, you know, compul like be compulsive about trying to find a decision. So with OCD specifically, we take the practice of noticing, recognizing the urge to ruminate saying I could, but I'm not going to do that. And then distracting. But with OCD, you always want to address the OCD yeah. before you do anything else, because otherwise it becomes avoidance. So people who use like th the thought stopping makes me think of that, right? Like yeah, we never want to stop the thought or the worry. Um, and so I just say that because I think it's really important to remember that when treating OCD, we treat it like a different beast than maybe a generalized anxiety, worry, or rumination. Yeah, totally. Um, so I just wanted to clarify. That's probably yeah, the <laughs> nitty gritty academic in me, but I did want to no, clarify yeah. that. Totally. And that's yeah. really important to make that clarification because what works 
for someone else is not going to work for you. And like you learn that just having friends and seeing how certain things work for them. And yeah, so for those listening, if you're like interested in knowing more, definitely go see a professional because what's going to help me or my best friend or Jen is going to be really different to what is going to help you. Yeah, and OCD is just a different beast. It doesn't respond totally. yeah. the same to to anxiety treatment as every other anxiety disorder. Definitely, yeah, it is definitely something, and it's yeah, so multifaceted, just so complicated. That's why yeah, it has become. <laughs> it's got its own little world now because yeah, it yeah, is, yeah. that is just so complicated. So yes. anyway, we're going to move into our practice habit experiment debrief now so this is simply the part of the show where i ask the experts um what it is that they do to deal with the topic at hand so we're talking about rumination it's up to jen kind of how she wants to take this um but i may ask you yeah what is a practice that you do to deal with rumination if you don't have to deal with rumination then we can pick a different topic no i i think you know Absolutely, I deal with rumination. I think it's really important not to pathologize rumination. Um, I think most people struggle, at least with, you know, the, the ability to be pulled in by these thoughts. So for me, you know, I, I do find myself getting stuck sometimes or things that want to pull me in. And I really try to practice a lot of what I've, what I've shared, which for me, um, I think really noticing and being aware that like, this is what's happening. Okay. I've spent like five minutes churning on this topic and I'm not getting anywhere yeah. and I'm feeling worse. Um, maybe it's time to move on. Right. Or, you know, there's other, other strategies um, of just kind of setting aside time to worry. And again, this is not what you would do for OCD, but for just general rumination, you can carve out, five minutes that you're going to dedicate to worry. That's all you're going to worry about is this one thing. But outside of that five minutes, no, it's not going to take up your mental space. And so I really try to recognize what's going on, recognize when I'm hooked, recognize when I'm struggling to change the topic in my mind. And when I notice that, I, I just try to throw myself into distraction. It could be music. It could be talking to someone. Um, could be reading something you know and and so i really try to practice and observe yeah. um and not judge myself right like i'm human maybe yeah, i got sucked in for a while all right <laughs> yeah. now i have the choice to get out or not and that to me is the most important thing is recognizing that choice and then making the choice to move on yeah definitely what would you say are like some of the challenges that you face when doing this practice well I think that um, urges to ruminate can be really strong in the moment. Um, I definitely am not immune to sort of this, maybe being being allured by the idea of sticking with something and I'll find a solution. Um, so I find that to be challenging. I also think it's challenging because when something's really bothering us and our brain really wants to sit there and think about it, um, it's likely an urge that you're not just going to be like one and done about, you know, so I can maybe choose to go distract myself with, um, I don't know, one of my, my 
creepy uh, true crime podcasts, right? And try really hard to like engage in that. Yeah. But my brain might pop in a thought, right? That wants to pull me out of it. And so that's not going to just go away. It's going to resurface. And so I think what's challenging is that in addition to the allure, it's, it, it, it's recurring. So you're kind of always having to have that practice. And so the stamina can get a little bit challenging. Yeah, exactly. So how often do you find you have to kind of like make sure that you're channel- like channeling this practice? How often do you sort of feel you have to put yourself out of those situations? Um, it really depends on what's going on in my life. You know, times where things are pretty smooth sailing and, you know, and I think this is true. Again, I really think this is a common um, experience for people, but rumination tends to crop up when we are going through a difficult time or we have a certain thing, you know, difficult topic on our mind. And so if I am going through a a harder time in my life, I am going to be more vulnerable to this rumination. And so again, being aware of that, um, you know, I'm going to need to just be mindful that I'm probably going to have to practice it a little bit more. Um, and just being flexible about kind of noticing and and recognizing that there could be things going on around me that are going to make it so that I need to, to do this more. But I don't think there's a a set practice that I have in place that I do daily or anything like that. So how do you think this practice impacts your resilience or your perception of life? (laughs) Well, I think that, um, for me, for me, or just kind of generally for me. Um, so I think it has helped me really recognize that, I have a choice in where I put my energy and where I put my mental, my mental energy and my mental time. And so I think that adds to my resilience because it, again, allows for me to be flexible and see different perspectives that I don't have to be like ruled by this thought. You know, I don't have to be pulled where this thought wants me to go. Um, And I think it helps increase just productivity and and constructive coping when you're not, when I'm not spending all my time in an unproductive space. And it helps me think, okay, uh, what, is there anything else that I could do that's constructive? Again, if not, I need to go distract away. But if there is something I can do, let me do that and then move on. So yeah, I think just not getting caught in that uh, has been really helpful. Definitely. So Based on your experience, this is my last question. Do you have any other recommendations of practice that you would combine with this or something that you would use to improve this particular practice? Um, So I think that a lot of what I've been mentioning with regard to like observing thoughts and flexibility and thinking um, has to do with, it's it's a lot of... um, like acceptance commitment therapy is where a lot of it comes from. Um, And so that is a whole kind of practice, but I I think there's a lot of value because it's a very um, non-judgmental approach to thoughts. It's a very kind of accepting where we are, um, but also committing to do better. Um, Mm. And there's also, 
you know, DBT, which has a similar flavor. And I'm not an expert in either of those, but I do pull from each of those because I think there is there when we can observe our mind and we can observe our thoughts for what they are, which are thoughts, they can be they can be a lot less scary. They can be a lot more, you know, we can do more or not with them. Yeah. Um, and we can we can just really let them pass or let them go. And I do think that's a nice approach in conjunction with, you know, just not getting stuck in rumination. But sometimes it's when we overvalue our thoughts that we get pulled into rumination to begin with. So I definitely think practicing that observation, accepting that I had a thought that I didn't like, or I had a worry thought, and that's all that it has to really be. Mm. Yeah, I really like that. So thank you for answering those questions. We're going to go into audience questions now. So we've got a question here, which I really want to ask because I am really fascinated. How should we face a friend with OCD? And so what should we do when he or she ruminates? Ooh, so in general, you know, if the person has OCD, you know, I think encouraging them to seek a professional, a psychologist who's been trained in exposure response prevention is an incredibly important message to be sending because there is help. There's really good help. We have such good therapy um, and it's so effective. And so I think always kind of putting that plug in and, and, encouraging people to seek treatment and seek help is one of the most important things. When you notice a friend or a loved one might be struggling with rumination or really any compulsion, we try to work to, um, you know, validate the distress that the person is feeling. Um, but ideally you don't help them do the compulsion. So in, in this, I say this very, with a big asterisk that, if yeah. a person's not in <laughs> that's treatment, yeah. that's going to be really hard to do. But mm. if they are in treatment, right, one of the one of the most supportive things a person can do is say, like, it looks like you're really in your head. It looks like you're ruminating. It looks like, you know, you're really struggling with OCD right now. That must be really hard. Let's, what, what would your therapist say? Let's try to talk back to OCD, to respond in a therapeutic way, and then let's let's go take a walk. Let's go do something else, right? Um, what people are typically pulled to do, and if a friend is not in therapy, it's going to be harder to do this, but people are, or to not do this, but people are typically pulled to ruminate with them. So like, do you think I do you think I touched that guy on the subway? No, there's no way you touched that guy on the subway. You were sitting five feet away from him. Yeah, but what if he moved closer to me, right? And you can get into these back and forths and almost have an external conversation of the rumination. And that's really not long-term effective, but it's a very easy sort of place to get pulled. So therapy and then working with the person to notice that they're struggling, but then give them like, point them towards their tools. And, yeah, and of course. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, we want to put like, yeah, big asterisks above this episode <laughs> is like, please go seek professional help because yes. they have 
to read it like like Dr. Jen, you know, they know what they're talking about and the average person does not. So please, if you have more questions or if you feel like you can relate to this sort of thing, please just go and seek professional help because there's no harm or foul in seeking professional help. It's always better to ask than not to ask. So we're going to go into the open mic section of the podcast now. So this is essentially where the guests, Dr. Jen gets to talk about pretty much anything that she's passionate about. It doesn't have to be related to resilience. It might be. So I'm going to hand it over to you now, Jen. Take it away. Oh, geez. Okay. So <laughs> <You're large now. laughs> my job here is well, done. <laughs> um, no, I think it's, it's, I think one of the things that comes to mind um, about what I am passionate about does actually does loop into resilience, um, but it also is part of other clinical practice that I'm involved in, um, but it is about supporting people who are going through fertility struggles. Yeah. Um, And it's something that, you know, I, I, to be honest with you, I mean, I, I have, I, I went through my own journey, my own struggles. I have two I have two beautiful little boys. Um, and so, you know, luckily my, my path led to somewhere really happy, but what really got me thinking about this and got me really passionate about this is that it is a really, it can be a really, really hard journey. Um, and it can feel very lonely and it can feel very hopeless at times you can definitely get pulled into ruminating about all of these questions that just simply oh don't have Oh my gosh, yeah, I bet, totally, that would be. Oh. It's, it's, and it's something that I think everyone, you know, you can hear it and you're like, oh yeah, that would be terrible. When I went through it, I, 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 I didn't know where to go. I mean, it was like, I had a, I had a wonderful doctor, but there was no, there was no referral for mental health services alongside. And I think what I feel really passionate about is like, they should be given hand in hand. Like there needs to be more, I think, bridging of the gap of like the physical piece, which is really demanding and really difficult and really hard and causes its own like challenges. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot. Right. Mm -hmm. But then also we need to recognize that there is an entire mental process and, and distressing, potentially distressing psychological process around it. And not for everyone, you know, so I'm not trying to say that everyone finds it distressing, but a lot of women do. I mean, if you look at research, women who are going through fertility treatments or infertility have depression and anxiety rates as high as women who've been diagnosed with major medical illnesses like cancer or HIV AIDS, you know, and it's like, that's the level of distress that women experience and it's just not talked about. Yeah, um, definitely. So. Yeah, no, it's definitely I, like I an area that needs to be talked about more and I feel like we don't talk about it enough mm-hmm. for like, and it's disappointing for a, like you know, a day and age that's supposed to be so progressive and all this stuff for like pregnancy and trying to get pregnant and then having, if you can't get pregnant, like one of your other options and how do you do this? You yeah. know, IVF and adoption and stuff. It's like, it's still really not that talked about because it's still something that like, oh, okay, like it's between you and your partner and whatever. And like, okay, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's like, on yeah, like 
on its own and is a personal thing, but like you need you need support because it is just such a complicated time and because it involves and I think it's like like you said, it it hits that extra part deeper because it's like a physical part of you that mm-hmm. is like contributing to this thing. Like as a woman, obviously it's just so much more connected to headspace. And yeah, like you said, I just it's so surprising that there isn't that immediate like mental health referral, like for counseling yeah. or psychologist something, because it's directly correlated. Like it's so connected to your brain. It's your body. Like it's your, it's how you're processing. It's your ability to become a parent. Like it's so interconnected. It shouldn't just be an immediate response. And yeah. so sad that it's not. Yeah. And there's just a lot that can, can potentially, you know, a lot of thoughts that can go into it. A lot of, you know, thoughts about your body, thoughts about yourself, thoughts about yeah. being, being broken, being like, why am I not like everybody else? Right. And like, I mean, there's just, there's so much that can go and everybody honestly has such an individual experience with it. Yeah. Um, that people, people need a place to be heard and to feel, you know, just like with a lot of other things, right? Like a place where they feel safe where they can express the grief, express some of the thoughts that like they can't tell their partner or they can't tell pe- other people. And there's a lot of those. Yeah. Um, yeah. And <laughs> when you don't have a place to go with it, 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 you know, clanks around in your head and it, you know, our thoughts impact our mood and impact our behavior. And that is the essence of CBT. Right. And, and it's very true. Um, and so yeah. I just think that, having dedicated support during these times for people who feel that they need it is just of utmost importance because there are really, really effective, you know, ways to help with mindfulness and help manage those thoughts and help to balance some of those thoughts and just really be heard in a space where you're not going to be judged about it. Um, So that is something I'm very passionate about. And I would love to live in a world one day where like, it's presented side by side, you know, here's your, here's the kind of reproductive plan. And then here are some really good, you know, professionals and and groups that can help you through the emotional part of this journey. Yeah. I wish we just had like a much stronger emphasis on just like how insane it is. It's like trying to be a parent and just like having a child. Like I feel like because you see like little kids and stuff all the time, you know, everyone yeah. has like, a family or whatever. I think as humans, like we underestimate how difficult it is to get to that point for some people and oh. how like just, and even once they're here, like what it means afterwards and just like, I think yeah. it's like, it's quite sad how we still really underestimate how that affects people. Just like being a human, it's just insane. It is. Yeah. And you know, when you're going through, the fertility piece, like, I don't know that people fully appreciate, like, I mean, it almost, it's like the process of getting pregnant to your point, right? It just seems so like easy and like everyone can do this. Yeah. I think people, it works that way. Like that's awesome. And like, great. And though there's this whole other area where like you learn more about what can and can go wrong and does go wrong more than you yeah. ever care to know, you know, and like yeah. you're living test to test and scan to scan, you know, it's like, you're just, it's a constant 
it's great because you know a lot, but it's also one of those double-edged swords where like, you know a lot. And yeah. um, and it can go wrong like that, like so <laughs> quickly. Yeah. And for so many women, it does. And like, it's still so taboo and it's just like still something that you don't want to talk about and it then needs to be changed. Yeah. And it's like, you know, there's a whole lot that goes into expanding a family. And yeah. I also think not assuming that because somebody doesn't have a child yet or have a second child, it's not because they don't want one. Even if yeah. they do, it's okay. But like, I think the assumption is like, oh, oh my gosh, you don't yeah. want it. This was like Jennifer Aniston recently and like the whole thing where she had finally counted. She was like, everyone keeps saying like, oh, you know, I was obsessed with my career and stuff. And she'd been trying to have a child that whole time. And like nobody I mean, knew. Yeah. And it's like that's just so heartbreaking. Yes. It is because it's like so private and you don't really feel like you can just tell everybody and it's not anybody's business. To be accused of, it's like, I'm trying here, you know? And so anyway, I just, again, I I feel very passionately about it. I could just go on and on. Definitely, no, and it's good. And like, we need people to be passionate about it. It (laughs) needs to be something that, yes, thank you for being passionate about it. It's something that people need to be um, passionate about it again, comes back to that being resilient and being able to bounce back and having those safeguards in place and having, yeah, that access to professional help, which not everyone does, but there are always places out there. Yeah, and there's help out there. Um, You don't have to be able to afford it. It's always there. Um, So, yeah, please, if you need help, if you're listening, go reach out. We'll leave stuff in the description. And that is very nicely going to bring us to the end of our podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Jen Wiskusi, for being here. It's been such a pleasure having you. We've learned so much. I have really, really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for being interested in these things and and being willing to talk about these things because, you know, we don't always think about it or talk about it every day. And it's just important. I I just really appreciate you showing interest and being willing to, you know, share this i'm just so yes there is yeah there's a whole team behind this that find all these things yeah fascinating and trying to share the information just to make everyone more informed and learn a little bit more for those who are curious um but quickly for those who want to find out more a bit about you and what you do uh where can they go is there someone somewhere that they could look at or yeah i my website is uh com. That's D-R-V-I-S-C-U-S-I.com. And that has all of my clinical practice and my research and articles and chapters and things that I have been involved in and published. Um, And yeah, it has more information about me. Cool, great. We'll leave all the links uh, to Dr. Jen Piscusi in the description below. And thank you everyone for listening and watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe and we'll see you next week. Bye, guys. You have been listening to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by the Life Management Science Labs. Listen to episodes from LMSL's 10 Life Management Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or other podcasting apps on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps others find us and us grow to bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at pr.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. 
I'm Tia Hama. Thanks for tuning in.